You are listening to the Content Academy podcast where we teach online businesses how to create raving fans with their content. So let's get to it. Yes, hello, you're welcome to the Content Academy podcast. I am Phil McGrath and of course I will be joined shortly by Paul Caffrey as I am every week. Today's show is a little bit different to one that we normally do. Um, our guest is David Gilner. Now David is an Irish playwright, author and a uh, blogger and you know, one thing that's kind of popped up time and time again when we're speaking to our guests is that it's all about the story. So we thought we'd get someone in who certainly knows a lot about telling stories. David has written a number of plays. He's had a feature film, um, which is in production at the moment. And of course, he's written a couple of books, which we'll put the links to Amazon um, in the show notes for you to check those out as well. But I mean, David's story is quite remarkable. He was uh, initially an actor. Um, and had a tragic accident um, where he was very lucky to escape with his life. Um, David was struck by lightning back in 2004 uh, while working in America. And, uh, well, as you can imagine, quite serious injuries that resulted. And David spent a lot of time in, uh, in rehab and rehabilitation and trying to get himself back right. And this is where his writing started to come from. He couldn't act at that point, so he began writing. He wrote a play. Um, that play then was put on in Ireland. It travelled to the UK and it's been picked up now by um, film producers and is in production as we speak. Um, David has since gone on to write a number of plays and has one coming out most recently um, about O'Reilly and the Irish 1916 Rising. For those who wouldn't be too familiar with um, Irish history, I suppose, Ireland is celebrating its centenary of freedom from the Empire. Um, and David has written a play all about one of those leaders, uh, Michael O'Reilly. So certainly David knows a lot about telling stories, whether it be with fictional characters or researching indeed real historical figures. So we thought we'd get him on the show and have a chat with him about just how he lays out a story and how he tells it and, and maps it all out and some quite interesting stuff. And as we've heard time and time again from many of our uh, previous guests, it's all about the story. It's about getting that message across and telling a story. And certainly David is a man who knows how to do that. So hopefully you'll gain a lot from David's experience in both fictional writing and indeed historical writings. And certainly you might be able to take some of the things that he does and put them into practice when it comes into creating your content. So here he is, David Gilner. Okay, so as I said, we have David Gilner on the line. David is an Irish playwright, an actor and a producer. And he's very kindly given up his time to speak to us today. Dave, how the hell are you? Hey guys, uh, thanks for having us on the show. You're more than welcome. Great to have you on. In fact, you're our first Irish guest, which is a real change for us because normally we're speaking to guests from all over the world and time zones can become an issue, but uh, not with you. In fact, you're not too far down the road from where we are, so uh, it's uh, great to have someone on that time zone with us. I suppose, Dave, just really for anybody who is not too familiar with uh, you and what you do, you might just give them a bit of background about... uh, who is David Gilner, where you started off, and I suppose what you're up to at the moment. Yeah, no problem. Um, well, I started out as an actor. Um, I trained in a place called the National Performing Arts School. It was ran by two people, uh, a guy called Eamon Farrell and Jill Doyle. People might know Eamon Farrell because his brother was Colin Farrell. So uh, I'm from Swords, originally Fingal, uh, in County Dublin. And I go into town in a place called The Factory, a um, very famous building because there was a lot of recording artists who, uh, like David Bowie, recorded there, uh, Shirley Bassey, Aslan, U2. So I always great character in history. So I kind of, I'd never done acting, dancing, singing before. And this was a place that I'd come every weekend and kind of learn my craft. 
And then I started getting maybe small commercials and um, speaking parts in TV and film. And it's kind of really then from the ages of 13 to 16, I kind of had such a passion for the arts. And then I decided, okay, maybe this is something I could do with my life. Did a bit of work experience for a few production companies in town. And then after I did my leave insert, I decided that I wanted to study drama full time. My parents like, what are you doing? Uh, but uh, it was a passion of mine and they respected my wishes. So I went on to study theatre studies, which was a phenomenal experience. But then throughout the course, I had a bit of an accident in my own life, uh, which kind of took me out of action for a while. And while I was um, recovering from my accident, I started to write. Um, and I never, I never used to write before. It was a way of helping me deal with communication or dealing with emotions. And then I started to write plays. I became a playwright in a sense. I only became a playwright because um, I had a lot of alone time and I started to write out concepts and ideas because I was an actor and that gave me a great insight in, into writing for actors. So a group of my friends came together and we put a play on. The play became quite successful and it toured. And then that play transferred to London and then all of a sudden I was on a different scale or a different level. And uh, I'd never had anyone really review my work before. And uh, the Times came in to see me and they gave us a five-star review. And I didn't realize the importance of having a five-star review from the Times in England. So what happened was I started getting all these phone calls from Ireland, from the National Theatre and uh, people who've heard of me but, but knew I was on the fringes. And all of a sudden I had someone from the Times uh, give me that review, brought film executives and studios into my world, which I'd never worked before. And then I got into solicitors and entertainment solicitors as I was approached to sell the rights to my uh, debut play. And, uh, you know, right time, the right place. Uh, my debut play, which was called The Gift of Lightning, is now being adapted into a feature film uh, by Blue Pit Productions. So I started out as the actor. Then I started to write plays. And then all of a sudden, from the success of my debut play, I was fortunate enough to be in the right time, the right place, that I became a screenwriter. So between those mediums, I work between creating ideas for people or for companies, uh, acting in the odd gig or play, and uh, writing plays. So I kind of hop between the three, in, in a sense. That's where I am. It's a great story. I mean, if you think about <clears throat> the journey that you've been on, and it is spectacular, really. Um, now, I guess a lot of people, no matter if they're looking to write a play or, or whatever they're looking to write online content, um, that can always be a very daunting and, and difficult task. And I suppose you mentioned the emotions part there as well. How did you actually, you know, sit down and think, right, I'm going to write a play? Did you start out with that concept or was it just a case of you started writing or, you know, how did you go about that? Yeah, this is what I say to everybody. Actually, this is a, I'll lead into that question, Paul. Um, I, I write in coffee shops. Uh, I like, I call myself a social loner. Um, I like to be sociable. <laughs> I like to be sociable, but I like to be around because uh, as a writer, you spend a lot of time on your own uh, at night time, maybe if ideas are coming. But uh, I like to write in busy environments on my own and just to hear conversations. And a, a woman approached me today and she tapped me on my shoulder. And sometimes I do like uh, question and answers and, our motivation talks and stuff like that and she said uh, I'd like to buy you a coffee and I was looking at her like I don't know this person like I, I can't I can't place her and she said I, I saw your play last year and you did a question and answer and you said in the audience that 
um, everybody has a story in them, whether it's a play, a short story, a radio play, a screenplay. I said, I genuinely believe everybody has a story. And the first thing that you have to do is you have to write a paragraph. That's all. And if you don't want to put your own name forward, you can use a different name. But the first hurdle is to write down that idea on a pen and paper without editing. And she wrote this idea. It was a short story about a dog who uh, loved uh, The Who, the band The Who. Uh, but anyway, she wrote the short story and uh, it got submitted in the paper. And I did that talk oh, a year ago. And it was just that I was writing in this coffee shop. And then she came over to me and she says, she told me that story. So from where I was going back 2007, it would have been, Paul, I was doing a play in, in Letterkenny in a place called Ungreon. And I was living there for three months. So I had a lot of alone time after the, the play was on at night time. And I come back and I said, you know what? I have this idea for a play because I'd seen so many plays. And I went, you know what? I think this could be a good concept about students uh, who leave Ireland and go on a J1 visa. So pretty much I just had a concept, uh, a, a short idea for, for a piece. So I wrote two pages of, 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 of dialogue between a group of four Irish students, two female and two male. And that's all I essentially had was two pages with four characters. And then I started to develop those characters. And then I thought, oh, what could work? And, and what scenes have I witnessed in my own life? Or my sister, who's she wouldn't want me saying her age, but she's 12 years older than me. And then my brother, who's nine years older than me. They all had experience about leaving Ireland, what it could be Australia or America. And I had an experience about uh, but working abroad as a student. And uh, a lot of Irish people, it's kind of in our rites of passage. And then the idea started to get legs. And then I started to write more every day. And I started, the first play, actually, funny enough, I wrote, I just wrote scenes. I didn't think linear. I just wrote scenes. Because I heard um, a very good English actor, uh, John Cleese. And he was talking about when they were doing Faulty Terrors, him and his wife at the time. Uh, they would just write scenes. And they would have a desk full of scenes and then they come together and say okay guys what works and what doesn't work so initially some writers or some content writers could think okay I've got a deadline I've got to make this work I've got to make this funny but what always stood out in my mind was that when John Cleese said okay we've got a thousand of funny ideas for this episode now we can have fun at editing and I always thought that was an interesting approach so what I did for the gift of lightning was I just wrote so many different scenes and then I workshopped those scenes with actors. And then the actors would say to me, David, you know, I believe my character might not say that, but they could say that. So I realized yeah. at that point in my career starting off that how important it was to listen to the actor portray the language. Because as an actor, you, you kind of get to know your character and you could say that, you know, actually, yeah, I think my character would say this. So I'm kind of lenient with that as a writer where some people like Brian Friel would sit in I heard a story there last week. Brian Friel would sit in on every... Like Brian Friel is the master. Oh, I'm an absolute in awe of his work. He's a genius. And, yeah. uh, but he'd sit in on every audition uh, with the actors there. And that could be nervous for them. Or then you have Samuel Beckett. With Samuel Beckett, you can't change anything. You can't change the direction. It is what it is. And that's why Beckett works. So uh, my approach was, okay, uh, if an actor would approach me and say, could I change this or what you think about this I would always listen I'd never let any actor change without my consent but I had that approach of okay to listen to people's opinions yeah 
So I suppose, Dave, when you break it down, I mean, obviously you, you've written all these scenes that, you, that you've uh, put into or possibly could put into your play. I mean, how did you go about whittling those down and making the decisions and mapping it out and figuring out which will flow smoothly, get the story across and keep the audience interested, as I suppose is the main, main objective? Um, so basically I'd have all the scenes on my table and then I'd get a thing called a foam board. And what I would do was I would write a structure now in place. Uh, what is going to happen throughout this play? Uh, then I would divide it in lines. Okay, I've got four characters. Uh, some way through it, they're going to meet X, they're going to go through Y, they're going to visit this country. So I'd have, let's say, an essential roadmap of the play, where I want to get from start to the finish. And then I'd start to get a pin, and I'd stick different scenes on the foam board. And then I'd start to see a map. So then once the map was complete, then I would say, okay, I, as the audience member, have to watch this. I, as an audience member, have to follow this. What type of rhythm? What type of pace? So I was very conscious about that. And then mm. what I would do is each character that I would write through a play or a screenplay or radio play, what I do then is I read the whole play as that character and only his character's lines. And then I'd read the next character. So my whole focus is that at no point are there characters overlapping that it's the same voice? Because as a writer, you're writing for multiple characters. So the first play I had had 22 characters. So I had to be so cautious that they were 22 different voices. And a, a, a mentor of mine at the time, a guy called Aidan Harney, who was a playwright, gave me that great advice about each character having its voice. And sometimes those voices can overlap because it's coming from you, in a sense. It's really interesting stuff. and. Well, so I suppose, uh, you know, I'd probably come have a bit more of a logical than a lateral way of thinking. So if you're, you're looking at taking the, the characters on a, on a journey as such, so they, they start off in one place, they, they go somewhere, or, you know, do you also have an emotional uh, journey to go, that they go on as well? So I suppose you mentioned Brian Field, Philadelphia, here I come, the relationship with the father and son, it's, it's an extremely emotional play. Do you, would you map that out for maybe your, your main characters, or is that something that just organically happens? when you write the stories? Uh, two things. Depending on the player or, or, or the mood I'm in. So sometimes I would uh, map out an emotional character arc with father and son. You know, where he is emotionally at the start of the play or where he is at the end of the play. Or then sometimes I actually just organically just go for it. Do you get me? And it just falls into place. Yeah. So uh, interesting thing, when I wrote my first screenplay, I'd never written a screenplay before. So this was very daunting for me, and I just jumped straight in. And it wasn't until after I'd finished my first commission that I started to read books and structure on screenplay. And there's formulas. There's certain pages that you have to hit. So like a studio film, on page 10, there's going to be X reveal. On page 27, there has to be this reveal. On page 42, it's going to be this reveal. So it's very formulaic. But if you go to see mm. certain films, Certain films follow that structure. There's a great book called Save the Cat by, um, can't think of the author's name. It'll um, hopefully you'll be able to tell your, your uh, listeners. We'll get it in the show notes anyway. I'm sure we'll find it. So Save the yeah. Cat, yeah. Save, cool. save the Cat, yeah. And um, so it, I started to watch films after reading his book. and went, oh, it's quite interesting that they were hitting certain notes. But I didn't read any books on writing a screenplay until... Uh, I had finished my first commission. So after my second screenplay, I'd read a lot of books on structure. 
and uh, like yeah. the do don'ts of writing. And I found that very helpful, by the way. Uh, uh, that was a great help for me, to be honest, which is the structure of a screenplay, because there is a structure in place. Certain producers, funny enough, this is true for your listeners, uh, I've met producers, if they don't like the title of the screenplay, they will not read it. Um, mm. And people find that very strange. Or you could write a treatment. A treatment is the Bible. It's everything that happens in your film in 10 pages. Okay? So you could pitch to a studio and they'd say, okay, let me read the treatment. And then they like the treatment and they'll say, okay, can't wait to read the screenplay. But sometimes you do it in reverse. You write the screenplay, but they don't want to read 200 pages. They haven't got the time to read 200 pages. So they'll say to you, uh, where's the treatment? So uh, as I say, producers are like accountants. like, And some producers will like your work uh, or, or that type of work, and others won't. It's just about meeting the right person at the right yeah. time. Yeah, that connection. And um, No, I really like that. And I suppose like there's a lot of contrasts. I suppose a lot of people who will be listening, they'll be, they'll be writing. So they may not necessarily be writing screenplays. So some could be writing stories, but they're ultimately looking to add value to, to their followers. Um, so I, I remember I was at one of your, your shows there last year, really, really enjoyable. And you did a Q and a at the end of that as well. And you mentioned, um, I think it was called faction. So kind of being taking creative license when you're actually writing. Do you want to maybe share a little bit oh, on that? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I call it, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of coined this thing called faction, was that uh, people would say, come to me and say, oh, that was about Mark O'Reilly down the village, what happened to him three weeks ago, and I'd say, yeah, I'd never, I never question when people can see something into my writing, so what I do was, I take a, I take a true story, and then I kind of take creative license to it, but I will never take ownership and say that it is truth, or it is, or it is fiction, so I just call it faction. But people always used to see into me and say, oh, that's your, that's your Uncle Jimmy, or that's your, your Auntie Mary, or your best friend Paul, or vice versa. And I always found that interesting how different friends or family members or people who don't know me would come up to me and say, you know, uh, I know what you're going through. Uh, I wrote this one play, and a couple came up to me, and they thought I was writing about losing, losing a, a loved one. Or uh, that I they thought I, that I'd lost a, a baby, which I hadn't. But at, at that point, or at those points, I just I just listen to them and say thank you. I don't I, I I don't engage to say that no, this is what I meant because everyone has their own interpretation. So yeah. I think it's very important for people to never forget, no matter what the contest. If it's, if you're writing for a featured article or a blog or or a vlog, even is that you know. The most important thing I believe is that 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 creative flair that we all have us that make us individuals. Yeah, and I mean that's it. It's all about putting your own personality, getting that across, whether it's as you said, through through a video blog or a blog and an article, um, or a screenplay that you're writing. You know, it's about getting your personality across, and essentially that's what people look for. I mean, through the tribes that we build and the followers that we gather. They like our content, but they like us as well. And the idea is to get them on board. And that's what keeps them coming back is they like our unique spin on things, the way we can, the way we have a, have a way of getting the story across. And maybe your sense of humor, your quirkiness, and certain people will resonate differently with certain, with, with certain groups. And I think yep. that's why I always say that if it's a case that whether it's myself and Paul, whether it's uh, some of our other guests have been on, whoever resonates with you that you feel you're learning from, 
Go and learn from them. If that's what works for you, go and do it. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, well, no, you should only listen to us. Whatever you find works for you, certainly follow that person and learn as much as you can from them. And then maybe you can open doors to someone else who you can learn even more from further down the line. But that's what it's about. It's about getting that personality across. And I really, really like that, Dev. What I find interesting is that we know each other. And I've, uh, for your listeners, I've seen your journey. And and listening to you guys on the National Broadcaster on 2FM, you guys have a natural chemistry, okay? So when people listen to your, your, your shows or they meet you in person, what they hear on radio is what you meet in life. So I have a social media following, but uh, I know I could talk a lot of crap. You guys will vouch for that. But uh, <laughs> what I think makes me true to who I am, what you see on social media is what you see in person. I am not two different people where I can find some people get that, get that mixed up. They, they have a problem with uh, well, what they try and project online, but then when people meet them or dealing with them business terms, what you see is what you get with me. Uh, in my writing, in my social media, I am that same person. So it's either a love or a hate relationship. It is, there's no love lost there. But I can the, the way you guys are on the National Broadcaster is the way I'm here talking to you, and that's the same with me and my work. I kind of stay true to who I am as an individual with social media and with my work. And I mean, there's one thing that actually shows that because I mean, some of your video uh, blogs that you do are quite entertaining. And I suppose there's a lot around the, the air of positivity. Um, and I suppose that the benefits that brings as opposed to just being kind of a negative person in the world. Uh, and that's absolutely true. Uh, I suppose we me face to face. But I suppose how much has that outlook kind of formed who you are today? Well, see, the, when people said to me I had my accident, they said, did that change me? No, I think I was always the same person, the same person I was when I had my accident in 2004 to who I am now. The only thing that the accident did to me, and it was the only thing, is that life is so short. So I think when you've got a near-death experience or you suffer something like that, you think, well, okay, we're only on here for a short time, so let's make the most of it. So the whole idea is that and I talk about it at these workshops that I do. It's about, uh, look, trust me, when I read these books, these self-help books, and I have to say you have to be positive all the time. Oh, it's a load of, seriously, nobody can be positive 24 hours of a day. I'm one of these guys, if you're having a negative day, then you say how you're feeling, but then you know what? You move on from that, where I find certain people who I know in my life, they like drama in their life. They like to tell you about all the negativity. Because in life, Life doesn't owe you anything, genuinely. And some people have a hang-up that life does owe you something. Life don't ate, owe you nothing. But what I do love is that how we can all rewire or reprogram our minds. You know, I started out as an actor, and then I became a playwright. And then I had one play. And then I was told, oh, that was just a fluke. He'll never do it again. And then I had a second play. That was my most critical play. Ah, sure. His play will never travel. Then my work started to be translated. Started to go to Europe. And then Asher, his work will never be turned into feature films. And then people started to buy my rights. I started to be commissioned to be a screenplay. So throughout my career, I've always had those negative neds, I call them, or people I call coffee and kicks. There's people in your life who would like to take you out for a coffee. And they'll pay for the coffee, but the point is they don't want to see you succeed. So you think they're friends or, or acquaintances or people you can work with. But they're not. And I, I, you have to be very wary of those people because uh, it's all about focus. And that's why positivity is really important to me because 
uh, I have to really visualize and focus in achieving things like that because when I when I say that I'm going to put on a play, I will talk about a play before I've even written it. I have sold plays in the past to theatre companies without even writing it because I have to believe in that this is going to be the best play that I've ever written. I've got to believe in what I'm selling. I've got to believe in what I'm writing. So I'd have no problem putting my neck on the line. And people might think that's, that, that might be against that fact, but uh, visualization is, is so important to what I do because in the arts, I'd say it's 80% rejection. So my whole philosophy is the more no's I get, I'm getting closer to that yes. And that's how I look at rejection. Yeah, um, and listen, it comes across very well. And I mean, obviously, Paul has spoken about the, the some of the work that you do. And I know as well, obviously, you do some writing for various other websites and you write articles for papers and stuff like that. And in terms of creating those articles, Dave, I mean, how do you go about um, coming up with your ideas and the concepts for those, sitting down and planning those out? How, how far in advance do you like to do that? Or are you very much one of those people who will go, OK, I have a deadline in 48 hours. Let's just sit down and see what comes out. Okay, so I'll give you two examples. Uh, so I have to uh, I have to write an article for uh, Be Complete uh, every week, and uh, with that one, I don't think about it until the day before, and then I will have the blank page, and then I will talk about okay, what's the article about? Why am I writing this article for this publication? And then I talk about what's happened in my life. What's the message I'm trying to portray here? So for for that particular publication. I wait until the day before. Um, interesting enough now, when it comes to deadlines, uh, uh, my next play coming out is called The Unsung Hero. And how I worked with that was I had to have a deadline every Monday for 6,000 words. And what I liked about that was I actually wrote every day um, rather than writing two or three days closer to the deadline. I kind of, for the first time writing a play, I actually spread it out throughout the week rather than uh, getting close to the deadline. And I've really, I actually really enjoyed that process, I have to say, lads, uh, spreading out the deadline throughout the week. Uh, uh, that's been a great process for me, personally. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, it takes a bit of pressure off, I suppose. But then again, I mean, we've all been there, and I know you have too, from, from the sounds of what you're saying. We all seem to, sometimes you can leave things down close to the wire and, Kind of, some people tend to work better under pressure. Yeah. Um, under that, under that cost, under that pressure. Yeah, you've got the deadline, and it's tomorrow, and you've got yeah. your listeners, so you've got your readers, and yeah, you know, I kind of thrive off that because yes, I'm like yes, it's just me, the pen and paper, uh, and also for readers as well. So I write shorthand on pen and paper, then I might doodle on my iPad, and then I'll go to my laptop. Uh, so I like to write in. I love to write in note notepads and books. Then I'll come to my back to my desk in my office and then I'll take those notes and I'll put it shorthand into a ledger. And then from that ledger, then I'll put it into the laptop. So I write, I write different means. So hmm. uh, yeah. with, I think for anybody who's writing, uh, if you don't have a cork board or a foam board in your office, get one today and fill that full of color. I like, uh, I like to have the foam board or the cork board wherever you are situated in, in the world what you call it and then I like to have a lot of colour colour in my pins colour in my cards and uh, so if I'm working on the project 
I like to visually see it in different colors and shapes rather than just black and white on pen and paper. Excellent. That's, I suppose, very similar to something Phil likes to do. He likes to just get no board and just get post-its all different colors and stick them up all over the place on planning out <laughs> projects. Because yeah. you, you get to have fun doing that because, you know, sometimes, you know yourself, if you're, if you're writing an article that you're knowledgeable on, but you're not that, you know, you're not in the mood, let's say, to write. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Those days are there when you just don't want to do it, but, you know, you kind of have to. Yeah, and we're all in that same boat. For anyone here to listen to me and don't think that I get writer's block or that I don't suffer from, oh, my God, my deadline's in an hour and I've only got half a page. <laughs> we all go through that. I think that my whole approach in life is about honesty as well and that that happens to everybody. Well, I mean, just on that then, so, David, how, how do you overcome those? Or have you come up with any coping mechanisms, I suppose, to help you get past that, that dreaded blinking cursor, as I call it, or writer's block, I suppose? Is there anything you've found that works well for you? Yeah, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of coffee. Coffee and chocolate. Go on, your boy. Coffee uh, and chocolate. There you go. I think there's plenty of our listeners, including me, who'll be very pleased with, to try that one. Um, and then uh, I could tell you that it sounds great that I'll go on it. We all. I'm from a village in, called Swords, and what I do is I like to tell people that I go for a 10k jog. I do. I go for a walk. I walk the village. I'll come back, put on the kettle, uh, take out some chocolate. Uh, have a coffee and then come back so the whole idea of escaping uh, the desk or that work environment wherever you call your uh, office and then I like to just get out and get some fresh air I think walking is great because for me personally it clears my mind and then all of a sudden I'll be 2k 3k into walk and then bang I'll be like oh write this down on my iPad my iPhone I have to get back because you know the inspiration is it (laughs) So you walk out and run back, eh? Exactly, <laughs> it's yes. It's hit me. Yeah. It's hit me, yes. So what I do is uh, coffee, chocolate, um, and to get out and get some fresh air. I'm not talking about running. I'm not one of these fitness freaks. Uh, I just get out there and get some fresh air. Uh, that that That's always a great, great. Or listen to music. God, yeah, listen to music. Or I'll just uh, listen to music or, or spend time on YouTube, not looking at TV shows or, 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 or reading. I just sit there and listen to some music and just shut off for a while. And then all of a sudden inspiration will hit me. Music helps me a lot, actually. Cool. I like that. Um, one of the things you mentioned there a couple of minutes ago, actually, is obviously your your new play, The the Unsung Hero. So um, I suppose for, for people who might not be familiar, uh, Ireland is about to celebrate, you know, 100 years of freedom from Britain rule as, as being an independent state um how i suppose firstly when did you you know spot the opportunity to, to put this play together and, and then secondly you know how long did it actually take you from the inception of the idea to actually completing it oh yeah this is a this is f- f- a fantastic story basically uh, my american godmother is a woman called Esalt O'Reilly, and her grandfather was a guy called michael joseph O'Reilly. And he was the co-founder of the Irish Volunteers. And um, when I was a young boy, I went to her family home. And her father was still alive, a great man called Aegon O'Reilly. And uh, Aegon O'Reilly used to own Greenor Port in, uh, in uh, Carlingford. And great businessman. And uh, I was in his house and there was a painting on the wall. And it was of his father. And I said to him, Aegon, who's that? And he's like, that's my father. He founded the Irish Volunteers and he died on the back of Moor Street fighting for the freedom of Ireland. And I'd never heard of him. So that moment always stuck with me. And uh, I had heard all these fantastic stories about him and his wife 
um, Nanny Brown, uh, Nanny O'Reilly, and she she was one of the the signatories for the first coming them on for the women of Ireland. Oh so wow! Two or yeah. two historical figures, but nobody knew much about them. So I said to Esalt, I rang up my godmother and said, Esalt, I said I want to write a play and dedicate it to 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 your to your grandfather and to your your grandmother. So what she did was she, because I knew Aegon as a kid, she gave me all his life's research, letters that they wrote to each other from the first time they met each other in 1893 in Ballylongford till the day he died in 1916 to the love letter that he wrote his uh, family on Moore Street. So I have letters, reports, uh, eyewitness reports, letters that Michael Joseph Raleigh wrote himself um, so for the first time in my life, I was writing a play based on real people, people who lived. And I got asked the question a lot, why do I want to write this play? Is because I want the world to know who this man was and who his wife was. Because to me, he was the unsung hero, him and his wife. What they did for Ireland, and not many people know about their story. And for me, it was the greatest challenge for people to know someone who I, I admire and this guy not only had an unbelievable he was an engineer he had a great businessman his father set up the uh, Kerry co-op that still exists today um, he traveled the world he ran a woolen mills in Philadelphia he owned a grocery shop in New York and Fifth Avenue he did some work in Mexico he did some work in Europe he negotiated with the Germans to buy weapons to bring over here to fight against the empire he founded a, a free movement, the Irish Volunteers, that had more soldiers back then than we do now, because his whole philosophy was that the only way we were going to defeat the British was through armed forces. But he was also an innovator when it came to Irish businesses and learning about the Irish language and how to stimulate the economy. And uh, he was a leader. And O'Reilly was a very wealthy man because uh, he was a self-made man. But he gave that all up for the freedom of Ireland, for the vision. And uh, just an extraordinary man, him and his wife. They had wow. everything. And my, my whole point was that Aegon, his son, uh, was a 12-year-old boy when his father died. And his father would write him letters every day when they were in the GPO uh, holding a garrison against the empire. And Raleigh's whole attitude was that if he lasted 24 hours, he was a happy man. And that the actions they did would hopefully down the line mean something to this country. And that was a stimulus to, to, to set the movement forward. So, yeah, this play has been, I've been in libraries, I've been in colleges, I've been talking to lecturers, I've been talking to scholars. I've been just, for the first time in my life, I've been writing about two people who exist who 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 were real and the best thing about it was so we're talking about social media and vlogging and and the internet these people used to write each other love letters all the time or if they had an argument uh, and so let's say we and you have a fight paul or, or phil or we have an argument on the phone or in person it's dealt with but back then it was you know here's a letter i'm very angry you in paragraph one in paragraph two <laughs> i just told you your uncle has died in paragraph four, I'm saying I need something about the house. So it just kind of brought me back to an incredible time and that how important letter writing is and, and people be able to, to in, in a modern day society, I think 
letter writing should always be there. It's, it's an amazing gift. But anyway, I'm just extremely passionate about this play. I, like I said, it's yeah. like when you're selling anything, uh, I could talk about a Rahali and Annie Brown uh, all day. Like, And in my eyes, we come from a land of poets and scholars, but the proclamation is one of the greatest written documents that 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 was ever produced in in Ireland. In, that's my own view. I just think it's yeah. beautiful. Well, I'd say that's incredible. Actually, really looking forward to that now because obviously not where the background. But I mean, the two groups. I mean, the Irish Volunteers and coming to man. I mean, you know, they're you know, okay, my history might be sketchy, but they were pretty much fundamental uh, to us uh, winning freedom. So. Um, incredible. I think it's uh, these were a husband and wife, husband and wife. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's incredible that that's not um, more widely known. So, uh, geez, you could be looking on your your next film, could be that you never know, eh? Well, wood and all that. To give you an example, a, a French reporter came over to, to Ireland to do a piece on O'Rahilly because they call him a French knight without fear. Uh, the French admired Michael O'Rahilly. W.B. Yeats came out of retirement. His last poem he wrote was based on Michael Joseph O'Reilly. But yet, sometimes in life, and this is true to anyone listening, the people who survived or the people who were there at the end, they write the history books. So uh, anyone can find out about this information about Nanny or Michael. They just have to go to a library or they just have to go and uh, do a lot of research. Where now that, that I have every note they wrote each other, I've got letters on Connolly, Pierce, Casewin, Countess Markovich, um, it's just an incredible world that I've been blessed and fortunate enough that the family have given me all this documentation that I get to write a play on, on two people who, who I admire and, and that's the reason why I, I want this, this play that's the reason why this, I took on that journey to write this play yeah and um, I suppose if people are looking at the catch this podcast when it's uh, initially released when is the play scheduled to be, to be put on the and play- where the play opens up March 21st in Dublin, right beside where he founded the Volunteers and in the same place that his wife found him come on the Mon, um, in a place called the Theatre Upstairs in Dublin City Centre from the 21st to April 2nd. And then the play goes on tour throughout Ireland for a year. And it will be in London, Rome and New York, but uh, the venue hasn't been confirmed. But I've been offered uh, venues in each of those countries. So, yeah, this is something that this has been a three year journey of, of research on a rally and nanny. Yeah, it's, it's something else. And I mean, obviously, Dave, you've written some some of your own your own works and you're working with fictional characters. What would you say was the, the hardest part about writing this in terms of trying to stay true to the story and, and not kind of running away with your own kind of imagination and, and kind of fantasy? Uh, language is so important. Uh, how they spoke. So I was listening to podcasts, reading books, reading poems. How I speak and how I talk is completely different to how they spoke and how I talk. But what's the one fundamental, what's the only thing that we have in common? We've got emotion. Hmm. And that's, what I, that's what I honed in on. Uh, that he had, he had, uh, he was leaving his kids behind. His wife was still pregnant at the time he was in the GPO. So it's that emotional connection that emotional connection of visiting a country for the first time. This guy is from Ballylongford in Kerry, and uh, he won money on two outside bet uh, horses. Uh, he backed, uh, he won twenty pounds, and with that money, he got to go over and visit Nanny in Paris. He'd never been to Paris before, but he won that money in, in on 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 gambling on horses. Uh, <laughs> so, like, he, he, he was a great character, but 
it was that emotion of if I was to win money on a race or a bet, how would I feel? If I was to go to America for the first time, if I was to go to Paris for the first time, how did that feel? The first time that I shot a gun in a gun club, what kind of excitement did I get? And so that's from an emotional point of view, that's where I had, once I got into that frame of mind, from the emotional point of view, and then you just have to get used to that style of language. So that was, you just have to get used to reading so many books and in that style and in that era, and then the emotion. So once you've got the motion, and once you know, I have a sense how Aratli sounded and, and, and was. But to, another great idea from research, I always thought that him and James Connolly, uh, James Connolly was a remarkable man, but he, 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 he was a socialist and he had the citizens army. And O'Ratley uh, was a self-made man who founded the volunteers. Now, political, from a political point of view, the two guys didn't agree with their own policies, okay? Totally, but they were very uh, larger than life. And I found this transcribe between him and Pierce that said uh, when the volunteers weren't going to go with them for the rising, Connie said, I hope O'Ratley will be with us because that's a man who I respect. That's a man who's got to fight and that's a leader. So when I was doing all this research, I always felt that Connolly and O'Reilly respected each other, but I couldn't find any information to lead that until I found that little bit of a mm. nugget that was in the National Library. And I just thought, yes, that was a real sense of achievement because as I couldn't write faction in a sense because these are real people yeah. and each each member of the signatories in the proclamation have their own following. And it was, there were so many political views back then that uh, people see this, I might upset them, but I'm telling a true story in O'Reilly. So when I found out this nugget, what Connie thought of O'Reilly was just remarkable. Yeah, excellent. Um, Dave, I'm very conscious of the time and we're taking up plenty of yours. Um, so I think we will begin to wrap it up. I have one more question for you. Um, yep. Obviously, We've gone through a great many deal of your works. In terms of the biggest thing that you could offer our listeners uh, when it comes to writing, be it promotional articles, screenplays, whatever it might be, what's the one thing you you know now that you wish you knew when you started? Um, good question. Um, yeah, okay. No matter what happens, no matter what gig, no matter what project, I have to be true to me. And I have to be true to my voice. So when you're starting out as a writer, uh, you might haven't got the confidence and you might be persuaded by a producer or a director or a brand company or an agency or an editor. But then as your work progresses, you start to realize when that moment happens, you know what? I've been doing this for a while now. And if someone had told me years ago, David, stay true to who you were and stay true to your voice. We can always learn. We can always develop our craft. But if everybody has a voice, and I think what happens to young writers or even people only coming into the game is they believe they have to change their voice to suit certain fields or certain areas between the arts or being creative or being a writer. If you can stay focused on you and your voice, you'll always be successful. Fantastic. What a note to end the show on. And just before we let you go, if anyone wants to get in touch, learn more about you or drop you a message and thank you for the great information you've given them today on the show, where can they get a hold of you? Oh, get me on Twitter, Philly. Uh, uh, I'm at Irish Playwright. That is my handle on Twitter, David Gilner. 
but my handle on Twitter is at Irish Playwright. Excellent. We'll make sure to have that in the show notes. So uh, if you head on over to content.academy forward slash episodes, you'll see David's episode there and all the show notes from today's interview. Dave, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. I can't wait for the new play to come out in March uh, and we'll uh, hopefully get you back on after that and we'll have another chat. Uh, Phil, Paul, absolutely loved it. Great being on the show and I wish you all the best, guys. Thanks Cheers. very much. Talk soon, Dave. Yes, yeah, so that was David Gilner. Um, inspirational man. Uh, plenty going on from where he started to where he is now and what he's managed to create and uh, great works that he's written. Um, so I know it's a little bit different to our usual guests. And uh, Paul, I don't know about you, but I love that it's a different perspective on creating content, something that probably not many people in the online world would really look at or consider. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's, I suppose what's really unique for us is as opposed to our other guests that we have on, um, obviously we've, we've known Dave as we've grown up and, and obviously both of you are very good friends. Um, so I mean, we've, you know, a couple of the things he mentions there, you know, the first piece about the positivity and how quick people are to chop you down and, and, you know, to slag you off. I mean, we literally saw people slagging him off over the years as, as we were growing up. And if you look at what he's doing now with all of his plays and, you know, his film coming up, you know, absolutely, you know, a testament to the fact that, yes, you should absolutely stay positive um, and keep moving forward because uh, ultimately, you know, you'll get there. And, and that, that really kind of probably doesn't shine through in the interview because we gloss over things a lot. But when you think about it in what kind of, you know, six, seven years, he's after achieving an incredible amount so far. Yeah, it is. And it's a testament to the guy himself and how and, and his work ethic more than anything else. But I think there's a lot to be gleaned from that for our listeners as well. I mean, Dave speaks about, you know, being true to himself, keeping his own voice. And that's the one thing he did say that he kind of wish he'd known at the start. And no matter what kind of content you're creating, you need to stay true to you and believe in what you're, what you're writing, what you're selling, what you're producing. And that's what Dave says. He believes in everything. He's pitched it and he really believes in it. And that's the great thing. And one of the key things that also kind of just flagged with me was Dave mentioned that he actually sold an idea without having written a single word. And in our background yep. online and the content we create and the courses that, that, that we, we ultimately want to create and the businesses that we have, there's a lesson there because quite often we've seen people, you know, spend a lot of time creating courses and products for their audience only to find that it bombs. And they can look at it from the point of view that, okay, maybe my launch didn't go the way it should have went. But it's very seldom they will look at the content and say, well, actually, the reason it didn't sell was because it was my content. It wasn't my launch sequence. It wasn't my sales funnel. It was the content. But being able to sell it in advance, if you can get somebody to say yes before you've created anything, you're already on a winner. Absolutely. And I think also on top of that, like, that doesn't mean that you've got, you know, somebody has come along and is purchasing, you know, the final product and everything is sorted. What it does mean, if you can have a small quick win to kind of justify the fact, okay, people are willing to part with money for this. They find it valuable. They are happy. Then you can kind of go to actually, you know, building things up as such. So it's, you know, I suppose it kind of, it kind of comes along um, and it's similar to some of the other podcasts in the sense that, you know, testing an idea or concept before you actually go about building it so then it's actually more on track uh, one thing i did like was the uh you know 
don't be afraid to walk away from the computer to get up go out for a walk and you know get get your head fresh again that's another thing which i think is uh, is quite you know powerful because half the time people think that well you know i've got to put the hours in and if i'm putting the hours in and if i'm in front of my laptop for four hours i've put the hours in well really it's only about you know how effective you are when you're in front of that laptop so if it's a case that nothing's happening for the first half hour you go for a walk or as i suppose what probably suits you better phil is there, coffee and a bit of shocky yeah I'm, I'm, look, I'm, look, I'm looking forward to trying that one now next yeah, time i'm stuck yeah, for a writer's block i mean i remember speaking to, to sam norberg um i think it was episode four four yes it was and, yeah uh, sam spoke about procrastinating, cleaning which is something i do when i'm stuck um i'll get up away in the computer and i'll go and clean and eventually i get back to it and everything's cool I'm going to give the coffee and chocolate a go. It's better than cleaning. <laughs> so, yeah, procrastinating. Okay, well, <laughs> why not? We'll see how that goes. Um, but, yeah, all in all, really enjoyed that. And, again, guys, if you enjoyed that episode, give us a review uh, on iTunes. Reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter. Probably easiest going through content.academy. Everything is all there in one location. So whatever medium suits you best, you can do that. But, uh, if there's only one way you're going to reach out, a review would be the one on iTunes. Thank you very much. Yep, that's it from us. We'll talk to you again next week.